Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. This episode is brought to you by MarvBands. The MarvBand is the next big thing in player development. Marv's training patented handle design allows for more muscle activation and additional exercises, including movement prep for hitters, making it the go-to tool for arm care and hitting activation. Use code AOTC for 10% off of team sets and check it out at www.marvtraining.com. Today we have on Rick Franzblau, the Director of Olympic Sports Strength and Conditioning at Clemson University. Rick is in his first year as the director there, and the previous three years he served in the capacity of Assistant Director of Olympic Sports Strength and Conditioning. He is responsible for the supervision of the assistant strength coaches, graduate assistants, and volunteer interns. Rick oversees the strength and conditioning for all 14 of the Olympic sports, and he is directly responsible for strength and conditioning efforts for baseball, men's soccer, and track and field teams. On the show, we discuss how to match hardware and software in both hitting and pitching. We also get into how what we find on movement screens affects in-game performances, how to communicate and collaborate with on-field staff and the strength staff, and we talk deceleration training, proper breathing, and so much more. Here is Rick Franzblau. Rick, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Actually, I'm a listener, so I'm excited to be on here. Of course, of course. But I, I also wanted to encourage the listeners to make sure you hit the subscribe button below, uh, just because we are, are trying just to highlight uh, just the guests like yourself, Rick, and, and I appreciate all you, you coming to spend some time with us today, but also all of the coaches who have spent time with us in the past. And, and just to highlight that and to get it out to more people, just so we can help uh, help everybody who's in need and who wants to uh, become a better coach by listening to you guys and not me. But hit the subscribe button below. But for our listeners, Rick, I, I appreciate, again, you, you coming on to spend some time with us today. I know it's going to be a, a large note-taking time for me because this is something that I'm really interested in and passionate about, but it's not something that I'm you know trained in. Uh, mm-hmm. But for for me, for myself and, and the listeners, can you give us a little bit of background on how you decided to get into coaching? Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably pretty typical, grew up playing a bunch of different sports, uh, football, baseball, basketball, then progressing into high school, uh, narrowed it down to football and baseball, and then eventually uh, just football my last two years of high school. So that's also when I kind of got into strength training real heavily and developed a strong passion for it. Uh, Had some injuries in high school, then moving on to college um, to play football, 40K. Came in having three or four surgeries, had a couple more in my first couple of years. So actually by my sophomore year, I was medically DQ'd. Um, so that kind of opened another door for me in terms of strength and conditioning. So starting my sophomore year, I started working with the strength and conditioning staff uh, every day to stay involved uh, with football and all the other sports too. And, you know, I really knew then this is, this is my passion. This is what I wanted to continue to pursue and ultimately I had a goal and dream of playing professional sports and ultimately didn't get the chance if I was good enough because of injuries. Um, so kind of my mission in coaching and my why ultimately lies behind, you know, doing everything I can to help my athletes uh, pursue their goals and, and give them every chance to, to see whether or not they're good enough to make it uh, professional, whatever their aspiration is. 
I love that. And, and your, your bio states that you're the, uh, you do Olympic sports. Is that something that Clemson is, is kind of a, is, a, is that a specialty to them? Because you don't hear that term in the NCAA a ton, or is it just kind um, of an all encompassing thing? So basically in your traditional division one power five school, you usually kind of have three different uh, sects of your um, uh, strength conditioning department. You have a, a football staff, a Olympic sports, and a basketball staff. So basically just uh, encompasses all these sports uh, outside of football and basketball. So we have 14 teams that train in our facility. So being the director, I, I oversee all of them and then work primarily with uh, baseball and men's soccer. Perfect. Perfect. I got you. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons that I reached out to you, I saw that you posted a, a Google doc a little while back and it really caught my interest talking mm. about, you know, hardware and software. And, and we, you will hear the term movers a ton. And I know you've got, you've got a couple of different presentations uh, from the hitting and pitching side. Yeah. And so I, I'm going to go ahead and, and let you share your screen and then just kind of mm -hmm. uh, today's, today's podcast for our listeners is going to be a little bit different because again, you've got a presentation, which I absolutely love. I, I, as much as I can, I love to get out of the way and let you do your thing. So I'd love to see that. And I'd also like to be able just to ask questions kind of as we go along, if anything comes up, uh, I'll ask questions, but uh, again, for our listeners who want to see the presentation, it is on YouTube. And if you're currently listening to audio, we'll do the best we can to be able to explain kind of what's going on. But definitely want you guys to go check that out. But Rick, the the mic is yours, and uh, yeah, welcome to the show, huh? Yeah. Um, so to not get too long winded, I know you kind of sent me some general ideas and questions. I'll kind of maybe go off those, and then anything else catches attention just so we don't get into a long, drawn-out, boring presentation. But um, sure. I think the, the biggest area of interest and the, the questions I receive a lot kind of revolve around assessments and, and what to glean from them and how to implement them and what do they mean for movement solutions in baseball. So ultimately, I think the, the question at hand is trying to match hardware and software. So first, to kind of describe what I mean by hardware – for me, it's really kind of five things are one, your lever system. So this is not just how short or tall you are, but the ratios of your length of your femur to your spine, to your tibia. So these ultimately can dictate, are you more of a squatter? Are you more of a hinger? Uh, so this, this affects your forward move and hitting. This affects how you load and move down the mound and pitching. Uh, so an, an important, also your wingspan. Uh, important concept that has to be considered. Um, then maybe the most important one is your, your anatomy or structure. So some, uh, particularly looking at the hips, um, you'll often see um, certain individuals will have orientations of their femur, their upper leg bone. Um, so you'll see some people that walk kind of pigeon-toed or some that walk uh, with their feet splayed out and there can be some different reasons for that but oftentimes they are born with a structure in which they have a antiverted hip uh, which I'll show some pictures later that's what you're going to see with somebody that kind of has a pigeon toed or in towing right that's it so the retroversion or antiverted is basically the the angle that the femur sits in that hip socket right but that's really important for us because that's going to determine how much hip IR and ER you have okay and if it's structural in nature, this ain't something you're stretching to improve the other direction, right? You have some bony limitation. 
and actually stretching and mobility work in the other way could cause further damage and would be contraindicated. So you want to know what their basic structure is, and there are some tests that can help with that. Um, the next would be passive and active range of motion. So looking at the hip, the shoulder, ankle, T-spine. Uh, also, we look at cervical spine a good bit, particularly in pitching. Um, and how much passive and active range do they have? So passive is what I could, I can push you back into. So say you're laying on your back, Jonathan, and I kick your leg up, we're gonna stretch your hamstrings, right? I take you back as far as I can, that's your passive range of motion, me pushing you back. If you slowly lift up your leg, that's what your active range of motion is gonna be. So we know that when we have a large discrepancy between those two, is oftentimes we're at a higher risk for injury. But this will also change our movement solutions. And then the last two, movement capabilities. This is some of your screening. So you're looking at, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with OnBaseU or TPI. Mm -hmm. Maybe the pelvic tilt. Uh, what are their pelvic tilt capabilities? Their pelvic rotation. So some of these movement competencies. And then lastly, you're looking at static postures. So I will go over in some other slides rib cage orientation, pelvic tilt, are their, are their hips tilted forward, backwards, neutral, scapula positioning, so a number of different things. So all these um, different facets kind of give you a picture of what is their body and what is it physically capable of? Because ultimately this is gonna dictate what the software solutions or movement variability and options are for each athlete, right? So, you know, kind of what I'll, I'll talk about next is um, I think it's important when you're considering these, you have to understand uh, whether you need to make a change and if so, for what reason, right? So I look at it, and I don't have these in slides, but three different potential options. Number one, you need to improve an output or productivity, right? So output and hitting could be exit velocity, pitching, pitch velocity, a lot of different things you could look at, or productivity. Uh, do they need to improve their efficiency? So for efficiency, I consider it, what is their output divided by the effort, okay? So if we think of a pitcher, think of a pitcher who can throw really hard effortlessly and maintain their velocity for seven, eight, nine innings. That's really efficient and mechanical efficiency in that too. And lastly is health. If they are having um, pathological issues, they're having tissue issues, injury, then that's something we need to address, whether it be a change in hardware or software. So you're looking at three different reasons that you may be looking to make a change or alteration. Then ultimately, there's two options. Number one, maybe there's, once you assess the hardware, you determine their software is inappropriate, right? So then you're looking to change the movement solution, which will take time through skill acquisition but generally not as long as the second option, which is to actually change the hardware, right? So whether you're a high school coach, a college coach, or even a professional, usually the older they are, the longer the training history, the harder it is to train the, uh, to change the hardware. So oftentimes, this is where you really have to evaluate whether you have enough time to actually make the change in hardware. Sure. And Rick, if, if you don't mind me interrupting you there for a yeah, second, uh, with when we're talking about uh, just the innate hardware, what are some different areas that, because, uh, and let me, let me back this up a little bit. So whenever I went, whenever I first started trying to learn how to do movement screens, 
I started to see that guys would fail tests. And number one, they didn't like failing tests. So, so the first thing that, you know, players do is they ask, okay, how do I pass this next time? <laughs> and now the, the further that I've gotten, gotten on with it, the more I dislike the term fail, like you failed this test. Um, and so just to give it a little bit better connotation, this is not a fail test like you suck at it. It's just, you know, for the most part, it's just how you are you. Uh, but, but for the listeners who, who are a little bit less inclined to this on an everyday basis, what are some different areas that you're like, okay, that is something that comes up a lot, but it's, it's not really something you can fix. You just have to work around it. Like for me, it's kind of ankle mobility. It, it can be, you know, you can, you can help it a little bit, but for the most part, you, that's just one thing. It's just kind of a bone and some ligaments and you're like, you know, you can't really stretch it. It's not a, it's not a muscle. I mean, am I, one, am I off there, but two, what are some other way, what are some different things that, that you would rather kind of change how they move versus uh, trying to fix, uh, you know, their failed test, so to say? Yeah, it's great, great question. I think, uh, and this is where on base has been great in terms of enlightening and opening our eyes to a lot of these concepts, but I think one of the things particularly where the skill coaches may struggle is at the end of the day, pass and fail doesn't matter. It's just you take it back to those three questions I asked is, is output good, is efficiency good, and is health good? And if all those, you check the boxes for all those, then that doesn't necess, necess, necessitate a change in the software, right? The software solution may be okay uh, despite failing some of these hardware things. So a good example I could give is uh, – pelvic rotation test or pelvic dissociation, right? Is you may have somebody that has poor dissociate dissociation. Uh, it would be deemed a fail on the test, but you know, they may just be a kickback guy, a scissor guy in terms of hitting, right? So it doesn't require much dissociation at all. Uh, not a lot of pelvic rotation. So they've found a movement solution appropriate for their software. Uh, and as long as they check those other boxes, they don't need to necessarily train to improve that test. And it could actually be detrimental to what yeah. their movement solution is. Yeah. Uh, and, and with the pelvic rotation for, again, with the audio, it's kind of like trying to, it's moving your pelvis before you move your, your upper half. So you'll see guys like, uh, especially with on base you, they've got Greg Rose standing with his arms crossed and he's trying to rotate his pelvis back and forth. And the idea is trying to see or trying to, um, see if, if they can separate. And this is another term that a lot of baseball coaches use hip and shoulder separation. That was something that we chased for a long, long time. And that was something that obviously, uh, a lot of people do, but that's just something, that's another test that sees if you can, if you can physically do that from a static position, I, I guess it wouldn't be static position, but just from a certain position. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so you have a lot of examples like that. You mentioned hip shoulder separation, uh, and particularly in pitching, I mean, it could be a movement issue. It could be having the right amplitude and timing of pelvic rotation in pitching. It could also be a T-spine issue, uh, or it could also be one that gets overlooked as cervical rotation. If I'm a right-handed pitcher and I have poor neck rotation to the left, that's going to limit how much separation I can get. So all these things you have to look at. I will say, uh, you know, I get 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds as freshmen, uh, generally have some strength training background. There's a, there's a spectrum among that, but there are some common hardware issues that we see, which I think are, are worth addressing, which, um, 
maybe I go over it a little bit. Um, so I think the biggest one that we see and oftentimes necessitates a improvement or alteration in the hardware is looking at guys in extended postures. So what I mean by that are your deep backs, like big lordotic curves, anterior tilted hips, uh, and you'll see the rib positioning. So I do have a picture here. So just think about somebody, their ribs are oriented more to the sky than they are the ground, right? And obviously there's an optimal bandwidth, but we see this all the time. And a lot of this, really there's a couple reasons for it. Number one is breathing patterns is guys are not using their diaphragm for respiration or breathing. They're using it too much for stability. Um, and you think of how many breaths you take throughout the course of the day. Your, 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 uh, your breath mechanics greatly influences your posture. So this is why people get so much tone in their neck and their lats and those types of things because these accessory muscles for respiration are really kicking in. So what does this all mean for baseball? So I guess in terms of hitting first is these guys that are really extended and tilted forward, they lose their glutes and adductors to help in the frontal plane. Okay. So frontal plane would be side to side. I think if I'm laying on my side and I do like a leg raise where you'd feel it in your hip, that's frontal plane movement, right? So if we're thinking about how we load and how we move in the forward move, we need triphasic planar movement of the glutes. So that means we can get the glutes to tilt back, tilt the hips back, right? We can get them to post, uh, so that's posterior tilt. We can get them to internally rotate and then ultimately abduction and external rotation through the forward move. So what we, what these individuals end up having are lats for frontal plane move, movement, right? So instead of having a glute, and I know Doug Lotta talks about this all the time, how important glutes are for balance and timing and adjustability in your forward move. Well, if all of a sudden I have lats for my frontal plane, one, I'm going to probably adopt more of a knee or quad strategy in terms of my loading, okay, which is going to affect my equilibrium and balance in my forward move, right? So a lot of times they'll get front side heavy, have poor adjustability, the other thing you'll see oftentimes, if they're a leg kick person or leg kick guy for timing, they'll kind of get into this fire hydrant dog piss uh, type posture, right? Where they'll hike up using their back instead of lifting up using their hip and being able to keep their ribs down. So really this is just their mechanism to try and find and feel a glute when they physically don't have very good hardware to actually be able to accomplish this. And then Lastly, this affects hinging too. So these individuals also tend to be poor at the pelvic tilt test uh, from like the on-base use screen. Uh, so if you can't get that good anterior to posterior movement, which is the sagittal plane, forward and back, right? Then you're not going to be able to unlock the frontal and transverse plane like we talked about. So these individuals, they don't trust their hips so they won't hinge during their forward move. So ultimately, that's going to affect their spacing, right? So they're not going to have enough spacing for tight rotation. So either they're going to have to move their hands uh, excessively um, or they're going to have to really pull open with their hips and stride really open to create space for a good tighter rotation. So we see, we see it in K-Vest. Um, I'm pulling up a couple slides for you, Jonathan, is, 
you can see the pelvis bend curves with these. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, so this is like a good hinge. We see 20 to 35 degrees of pelvis bend. It's slowly increasing as they go into heel strike. And then your guys that don't hinge, um, generally these extended postures and knee dominant loaders, they just don't create that hinge. So usually they don't have that, that good tight rotation that we want to see with a short time to impact. So this is something that can be worked on too. You just have to be diligent and it has to be pervasive. So it affects how you coach weight room movements. It affects how you coach postures and stretching and warmups. But if it's something that your, your athletes are working on consistently, it can be improved over a period of time in which it's a worthwhile change for you. But um, I think in these postures, you really see uh, tremendous influence in the movement solution, which oftentimes limits their productivity and their efficiency, which necessitates a change in the hardware. No, that's fantastic. So, you know, another couple of things that, that I think that are interesting is, uh, and this is something that I've thought about for a while is really trying to, to dig into, you know, how they move, which, which is what you've, you've been talking about for a little while, but then also giving them options, uh, to make different solutions to how they move. And some of them have just naturally adapted over time to be able to overcome some of these things. And they're like you said, with the three checklists, they're fine. Uh, and they may fail these in the test. Uh, but then you look at them and they're swinging and they're like, Oh, okay, you're, you're fine with that. Uh, but you know, it's really interesting just because a lot of them are like, okay, uh, I, I failed this test and now what? And they're really anxious because it's, it's, you're no longer taking this from a, Hey, I see you in your swing doing this to a, now you're taking their movement screen and going, Hey, this is just how you move. And this is probably affecting this. So it makes it a little bit more personal, I guess, is what mm -hmm. you could say. And instead of taking it from subjectively, like, Hey, I see you doing this wrong in your swing, which if you're doing something wrong and I'm telling you, you're automatically going to be defensive to going, okay, we put you through all of this. These are kind of some areas that uh, you make you, you and you unique. Uh, and here are some different ways that we can try and work on this. How would you go about that? You know? And so I think it, it really adds a, a really neat personal touch to it just because for a lot of different ways, we are moving the way that we have because we have for a long, long time. And, and you can, you can hit on that if you want to a little bit. Uh, but as far as changing hardware, it is hard. And if you don't have complete buy-in, I'm sure that, that it is, is much, much harder. But another thing that I've noticed is when you start merging the weight room and, uh, and how that affects their on-field performance, you get buy-in from both sides. Because I'm sure you've dealt with some baseball players who are like, dude, I just want to play baseball. Like, I don't, I don't want to get in here and, and do Olympic lifts. And, and, and this dude's yelling at me, telling me to get lower on my squat and all of this stuff. I just want to go take some ground balls. Uh, but have you noticed that by being able to do something similar to this, it kind of merges both sides? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it really goes back to the relationship and collaboration you have with the skill coaches, right? So I'm extremely fortunate in terms of the staff I get to work with, with uh, Coach Monty Lee and Bradley Lee Croy and Andrew C. and, and Ben Paulson, our, our director of player development. Uh, tremendous staff, very knowledgeable but also very bought into my realm of things. So I think the ultimate kind of consummate relationship is one in which not only, you know, I believe in them, they believe in me, but also we under, understand each other's language somewhat, right? 
So actually a lot of these presentations I worked on were done uh, in a lot more detail during the COVID time. So we could just continue to refine our language that we used back and forth with all these different things. So it's, it's stuff I'm presenting from a hardware and assessment and, and how I think it affects the movement stuff. And then our staff, baseball staff, you know, going through some more technical and mechanical things with me. And like, I know coach C we're going to meet here pretty soon. He's going to go over a lot of detailed stuff on, uh, you know, spin axis and efficiency and some of those things I want to learn a little bit more in terms of some, some pitching detail, but, uh, the road has to go both ways, believe in each other, and then work together on a common language. And when that happens, you create this synergy to where the athletes see it and they understand how important and how interrelated both of these realms are to ultimately achieving what you want as performance on the field. Yeah, and it's almost, <laughs> to me, it's it's the, the most eloquent form that I could think of at the moment. It's like death from a thousand paper cuts. It's like, <laughs> the more that you hear it from every single side, you're like, all right, fine. You know, it's one of those things because you're dealing with teenagers and I have, have had a decade of dealing with teenagers too and, and still do. And it's like, okay, they, they want to push back just because that's their nature. And, and so it's, that's really interesting. But uh, as, as far as like the physical assessments go, so you you take them through all of this stuff, I'm assuming. And then how do you relay that to the coaches? And then how do you guys decide just how to set them up in their best uh, position of success? Uh, do you have a meeting and then have a meeting with the player or just, it's really, it's hard to communicate because you're so busy. I know Monty is, is extremely busy and then trying to find the time to, to, to talk about these with every single player is, is going to be really tough too. But what's your best advice for anyone that's wanting to do this with their strength coach and just making sure that both sides are on the same page? Yeah, no, great question. And I think uh, ultimately, you know, we have a very ex extensive assessment uh, um, process at Clemson, but ultimately I'm not going to relay every single detail of that information to the coaches. So once we do it, uh, whether it be summer with the incoming freshmen or, or early fall is then, uh, you know, we'll have some meetings in the early fall, which I'll go over the most important aspects of it. So generally like some of the big things like, uh, and I'll put the slide here, like hip anatomy, are they retroverted or introvert or, uh, retroverted or inverted? That's going to definitely affect their movement patterns and movement solutions. So some of these kind of big rock items, uh, you really have to relay the information to them. And then it's a conversation back and forth is, well, this is because they've recruited them. They've seen them in detail. Um, a lot of times they'll send me some, some film too to look at. Um, is this is their current movement solution? How does it compare with what I've seen in terms of assessing some of the hardware? And then you kind of go through those, those three different areas and understand whether – whether we need to do some things from a, a software end or more from the hardware. So, um, but ultimately the decision uh, comes down to the skill coach, right? So I, I provide as much information on hardware and how I think it's assessing movement solutions. Uh, but ultimately the coaches are the ones that they've, you know, they've been doing this for so long. They understand the movement solution better than anybody. So it's just really my uh, job to bring the information to them Hey, these are, I think, uh, you know, what their body's capable of and then kind of working together and finding the solution. Um, so that's, that's kind of what the process looks like for us. 
But uh, you know, that's meetings early on, and then back and forth. And luckily, I'm able to be heavily involved in terms of not just weight room sessions, but warm ups and and other stuff, um, which is really helpful. So actually, we we'll run the K vest stuff uh, for the baseball team, me and my staff. So we actually bought it because uh, we use it with four different sports, uh, baseball, mm-hmm. softball, cool. and both of our golf. So um, just our, us running those things too, just helps even more with that uh, integrated kind of seamless flow of information and, and communication. So in short, I know that this is kind of off the cuff, but if you had to pick – one metric to look for in KVS because I know that there there are so many new really cool tech toys uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of our you know our baseball coaches are having to do all of this or trying to do all of this by themselves and and I've been there like I I, I completely get it we're trying to do the best for our players but uh, whenever I was a high school coach I was teaching six hours of a day uh, and then going to class or then going to baseball and then going home then it's like okay. I've only got so much time to learn all of this stuff. So not a necessarily a hack, but just being able to decide what was important and then going with that quickly uh, was, was really important just because I didn't want to waste a whole lot of time uh, on stuff that didn't work. So if you had to pick one or, or maybe even two things to look at with KVEST, what would those things be? Yeah, and I think ultimately, uh, I don't want to sound redundant, but it goes back to uh, some of our initial questions with hardware. So If I see something in assessment, then that'll probably draw me a little closer to looking at a certain couple things. So if it is, we see one of these guys that are really extended uh, in their posture that we talked about with the ribs up and the big deep lordotic backs is uh, I'm probably going to look at their, um, their pelvic bend. So are they get, are they able to get create hip thrust and hip hinge, Uh, but also their pelvis side bend in terms of, uh, we talked about like the fire hydrant leg kick, right? Uh, are they carrying too much of an upward pelvis side bend into heel strike? So, um, and obviously there's a lot of different metrics and, and things you can look at with KVS, but what we see in some of the, the hardware assessment, I think helps us draw a closer eye to some of the things that we're looking at. So, um, one of the overlooked things with KVS is probably those graphs at the very bottom where you can look at some of the movement leading into heel strike. So looking at the positive move. Uh, so not just the sequence, there's a lot of other good information you can gather from there, but I think it's important to know their hardware and also know, you know, from the coaches too, like what have we seen in their movement? What have we seen in the data? Uh, and ultimately it's how you put all those together. So even when you're looking at hardware and software, you're also looking at data. You're looking at bat speed. You're looking at rotational acceleration, time mm-hmm. to impact. You're looking at video. You're looking at hardware. You're looking at uh, movement solutions, KVS. So these are all just pieces of the pie, and you, you can't just rely on one. You have to kind of understand all of these elements when you're deciding whether to make a software change or you need to address some hardware issues. That was a great answer. I, I love that. And, and I know you've got your pitching slides up. So, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. And oh, let's yeah. talk about how, you know, how you go, asset, go about assessing pitchers and then what you found with some different, some different screens. And, and let's go into that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. You're going to see a lot of the same postural things from a 
uh, a rib cage and hip orientation is generally, uh, and you know, it's probably gotten worse, Jonathan, to be honest, the last several years is because uh, one, we've all understood the importance of the weight room in development for baseball players, but oftentimes at the younger levels, they're pushing, uh, you know, strength numbers so much and so quickly that they're further perpetuating these extended postures, right? Uh, so oftentimes it can be harder to kind of work them out of some of these hardware uh, uh, adaptations that they've made. So we see some more things with pitchers. We see the extended backs. We see the ribs up, the anterior tilt. Um, and oftentimes with this, we see the downwardly rotated shoulders, uh, too much lat involvement. So ultimately – we're looking at a lot of the same things. We add, add certain postural elements. We'll do a video screen of, of overhead flexion and shoulder abduction. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think to go over some simple things would be to go back to the hips. This is really important. I think it's easy for, you know, maybe it's a high school coach who doesn't have a, you know, a strength coach that's, uh, you know, done as much research in these areas. Some, some simple, easy things is looking at the hip socket and are they anaverted or retroverted, uh, because ultimately that's really going to affect their movement solution. So when we look at pitching, we kind of hear, uh, you know, a common mechanical model is to corkscrew that back hip and stay connected to the rubber as long as you can, right? So for that to happen, uh, and I'll try and pull up some slides, for that to happen, you do have to have some really good hip external uh, range of motion, some hip ER. If you don't, you're not going to be able to keep that knee out and create that hip uh, corkscrew, which you see right here. So, um, you know, you may be teaching somebody to stay connected for a long time, to create a good hinge when they're, when they're in their drive or stride phase moving down the mound. But if they don't have this requisite hip external range of motion, they're not going to be able to pull it off and it's going to throw off the timing of their hip rotation. So you're going to look at that strategy, or if they're on the other end of the spectrum, they're going to drive that knee in a lot earlier and disconnect earlier because they have a lot of hip internal range of motion, right? So it's just, it's so important that we assess that and we understand what are the potential movement solutions for each of these individuals. And then kind of going back to the extended postures, um, what we see all the time is an inability for people to really get a good glute load when we have these extended postures. So to, to create a good glute load, you're looking at three different things. One, a posterior tilt. So just think about if you're, uh, this is an analogy used all the time, if your pelvis is a bucket of water, right? If I can pour the water out the back end of the bucket, right? That's a posterior pelvic tilt. Uh, so posterior tilt, hip flexion. So that's just pushing my butt back. And then internal rotation, so turning into that back hip. So those are the three elements that create a really good glute load. So this is important for a lot of different reasons. It's just like hitting, it's going to help them move down the mound in a more coordinated, balanced manner. Um, and also you get a free energy return, okay? So if I load into my glutes by stretching back into the hip first in the IR and then moving and holding on some ER, I'm getting some elastic stretch and energy, right? So just like in hitting, when you're creating some separation, you're, you're creating some elastic uh, stretch for energy return, right? Versus if I'm quad loading and driving the knee forward, 
there's not a lot of elastic energy return in that. So what we see is over the course of uh, a game, our quad loaders, that's going to be a lot more mechanically and metabolically taxing, right? These guys are going to get tired. Um, so these are the guys you really see that start to drop below and things like that. So looking at these extended postures, um, it's really important because if you can address it from the weight room, from warm-ups, from breathing, you really can make some improvement and get higher quality movements. So it's important in terms of how you load the hip uh, and get ready for uh, your stride phase down the mound. Uh, but also it's really important too when we look at how guys rotate their hips. So if we're in those extended postures, what we see a lot of time uh, is guys push off the rubber instead of initiating uh, the pelvic rotation. Um, so kind of the old, if you go back maybe 10, 20 years ago, guys were thinking all the time, like push off the rubber to use your legs. Well, a lot of times that'll force the knee and hip to extend too early. So they'll spin into their lead leg block, right? But guys that actually create that good pelvic rotation or the hips rotating, the knees driving down towards the ground, these are guys that set up well for that lead leg block too. So it's, it's just so amazing how these postures affect all elements of the movement solution. And you have to also look at, like when we talk about lead leg block is you got to look upstream. So that's why a lot of people, if they just do block drills, they aren't successful because the issue is something that happened further upstream in the movement, which is what we're talking about here. Pelvic rotation versus pushing off the rubber. Um, so you know, very similar to hitting in terms of some of the postural things we're seeing. Uh, and then we just see different repercussions uh, from it in the movement solutions and in, in pitching versus uh, hitting. Oh, that's really good. And, and I, I wish I knew more about the pitching side so I could ask you some, some really in-depth, awesome questions about that. But these are probably, <laughs> these are probably, uh, not exactly, uh, again, as, as eloquent as I would want them to be, but what are just, okay. So uh, a lot of our listeners are in college or they are uh, in the high school realm, amateur realm for the most part. So teenagers, what are some yep. different common problems that you see with guys that are coming in? I know that you mentioned, uh, with the flared rib cage, uh, and being stuck in extension as far as, as uh, pushing weights too early with with sacrificing some movement quality, so what, just from from a pitching uh, motion standpoint or arm mm -hmm. arm care arm health mover standpoint, what do you see that that a lot of your incoming freshmen have, uh, and so we can try and really fix it before we get to you, or they get to you. I'm sorry. Yeah, and uh, a good and, and common question is, you know, I think in terms of the the arm care. Uh, is the way I like to frame it is you, you have to look at it holistically, right? Uh, so it, it can't just be, uh, well, for arm care, we do this post-throwing, uh, pre-throwing, we do our J-bands. Uh, that's our arm care program. So I think there's so many elements and it has to be holistic in terms of, you know, you're looking at nutrition, um, what's their acid base, um, kind of elements of their diet. So are they just eating grains and meat and it's really acidic? or they're having fruits and vegetables too and keeping a good balance there. It's obviously sleep, stress management. We talked about breathing uh, a little bit before and how important that is to keep accessory tone out of certain muscles. And then I think 
one of the most important things, and I haven't even talked about mechanics or anything yet, is how you integrate all these stress components, right? So what are, what are stress areas for a, a high school or collegiate pitcher? Uh, obviously the sport itself, right? Pitching, all the practice demands, the weight room, conditioning, um, all these I mean, <laughs> academics, all these different elements is you, you have to look at it almost like a, a cup of orange juice, right? And you have to be aware of how much of that cup is being filled up by each of these elements. That's kind of what I mean by vertical integration. So, you know, we're looking at acute to chronic ratios of throwing, and we know when we're in higher volume periods, we have to make uh, manipulations to the lifting and things of that nature. So you just, you have to be so collaborative in working with the coaches uh, to make sure that we're, we're properly vertically integrating all these different stress components. And then, then kind of lastly, you get to mechanics uh, and some of the different arm care stuff is I think a couple of the biggest things, um, and this will kind of get back to some of the posture you talked about. Um, number one, a big landmark is you look at where is the, the arm at front foot strike, right? Um, so are they up? 90 degrees flexion, give or take 10 degrees, um, because this will affect how their arm spirals uh, through the acceleration layback. Um, and then also a really big one, which is affected by where they are at foot strike, is how does the arm unwind in the plane of rotation, right? So is the arm unwinding, uh, and I'll, I'll pull up a picture for you. That's um, so this is a good one. Is the arm unwinding in the same plane that the trunk is rotating? So if I think of somebody that has a real overhead delivery, then they need to have a lot of trunk tilt to the side, right? So that means the trunk is rotating, really getting a lot of bend to the side, which allows that overhead delivery to be in the same uh, plane of motion. Um, if I'm more sidearm, I'm going to be more east to west with my trunk rotation, and then my arm will unwind in that position. So where we run into a lot of issues are uh, some guys that don't unwind and the elbow climbs, and then they're not getting that natural kind of tornado unwinding of the, of the trunk, which leads to a lot of arm stress. But ultimately that comes back to where they are at foot strike. So absolutely a mechanical component, but also in that, a lot of times guys are getting into this, um, this bad position at front foot strike because of some of these extended postures and not being able to load into the glutes and not being able to rotate uh, the pelvis appropriately and at the right time, which uh, alters their kinematics and they end up getting into this position, which leads to a lot of additional arm stress. So again, a lot of it goes back to posture and things that are happening, happening upstream. And then at the very end, you know, the last component is specific arm care stuff. So stuff you're doing uh, pre-throwing for, so for our guys, we're fortunate weight rooms right by the field uh, before every bullpen, before every game, before every throwing, they're up in the weight room for 20 minutes. Uh, we kind of have a general routine and also a few specific things for different guys, uh, posturally related. Uh, to go through their warm-up, then they're doing all their stuff uh, after post-throwing. So I think the most important thing, arm care, is that it's holistic 
and you're looking at all these different elements. No, that's really, really good. And, and again, thank you for being so in-depth with that answer. I'm sure we could spend an entire hour on just that. <laughs> and so yeah. oh, I, yeah. I, really, I really do appreciate it. And, you know, one thing that, that, I, that I'm curious about, but just because, again, if you're not in the strength and conditioning world and you're not keeping and staying up to date with your certifications and doing that every single day, then you can get left behind. And so I, I think that, that one of those areas is, you know, what, what, are, what are pitchers really doing as far as arm care goes that just research shows that it, it re- isn't really helpful. And so, uh, you know, uh, my, again, my dad was a pitcher back in the day. And, uh, and they used to run polls. And so he would always ask me, you know, Hey, so, so he's asking me now, you know, what are guys doing in spring training to, uh, between starts and, and are they riding bikes or are they running polls? And so we've had some different conversations like that just because he's curious and training has since evolved since then. Uh, but what are some different things that you still see coming up? And I, I, to, to backtrack a little bit, I think that conversation started because he asked if, if people still ice their arms or like I, I was throwing BP and he's like, Hey, you're going to ice your arm. I was like, Oh, well, that's a different conversation for a different time. Uh, but, uh, but what are some different things that you continue to see that keep popping up either on social media or you hear from your incoming freshmen or you see other college programs doing that? You're like, Hey guys, there's a better way that we could be trying to accomplish this. And that one we're, again, we're just trying to help our players. And so what are some things that you see that don't really necessarily do that? Yeah. Good question. Tough question. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I, it's just, <laughs> I, I, I know, I know that like whenever I was to backtrack again, whenever I was a high school coach, I'd see kids running poles in the outfield and they would be going yeah. like two miles an hour. And I'd be like, why the heck are they doing that? Like, are they not? And, and they may or may not have asked the player to do that. And I don't know the context, but that was just one of my pet peeves. I'm like, seriously, you know? <laughs> and, and so, uh, do you have anything that, that comes to mind whenever you see that consistently or yeah, not necessarily I, consistently, but do you have anything that comes to mind? I think, you know, generally it has particularly at the college level and, you know, power five is it has evolved an awful lot. So a lot of times when the guys get to us, uh, and for reflection of high school, how it's evolved and improved a lot too is absolutely. Generally, they don't have these huge misconceptions. I think the biggest area of concern is uh, just being having a cookie cutter approach to different things, whether it be a long toss strategy, whether it be weighted balls or arm care. Um, I think for the most part, people have kind of moved beyond uh, you know running poles and, and some of these things. It's more. Um, say like weighted balls, um, you know, for a certain population, they'll be very helpful. Uh, and even within that population for different reasons, uh, for somebody, it could be, it helps using a different implement, a different weight kind of helps clean up some arm path type issues mm-hmm. or for a select few, it could actually strengthen the arm. But, um, I think research is showing that that, that isn't necessarily translating to gains and velocities much. For some, it could be detrimental. So you could have some guys uh, where you have to be careful with weighted balls is when you have a quick increase. In, Mike Reinhold did a study on this. Quick increase in passive range of motion. Mm-hmm. So they increase their passive because they're using this heavier implement quickly without a, a uh, subsequent increase in active range of motion. So now you have this big disparity that leaves them at greater risk. So – it's looking at these different things. So you go back uh, five, ten years ago, too. Everything was shoulders down and back, right? All your scap work, shoulders down and back, shoulders down and back. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, for some, but now some have been cued on that so much and done it incorrectly is they have severely downwardly rotated shoulders that don't upwardly rotate well. So actually the pendulum has kind of swung in the other direction is we're having to work upward rotation a lot more with these guys because oftentimes they've been cued so much down and back is that uh, they've altered some some ability of that scapula to upwardly rotate. So, um, you know, it's and it kind of goes all back to our original conversation is some hardware and software stuff and what's what's appropriate for each guy. I think that's the biggest thing is just avoiding blanket suggestions and being able to understand and interpret what is actually specifically valuable uh, for each and every guy. So we, we have a lot of high school camps too. And usually I have a session with the guys, uh, you know, the biggest one I see at the younger levels is guys are throwing all these advanced methods at themselves at a young age. So mm-hmm. I'm a freshman in high school, I'm throwing weighted balls. I'm doing advanced lifting. Well, that's going to hurt you two ways. Number one, you're probably not ready to adapt to it at that current time, right? And then when you're maybe 18, 19, 20, and you could really use those because you've exhausted improvement from simpler means, you will already halfway adapted to it. So now it's hurting you twice, right? So I think the biggest thing is, (laughs) you know, the younger high school crowd is being patient, progressing off simple means, uh, and that's going to take you a long way in, in avoiding these these cookie cutter programs and other things. I'll get on a tangent a little bit here too, but also some of these quick velo game programs, right? Mm-hmm. Is one, you know, yeah, it's great if your velocity increases, but you have to give your connective tissue time to adapt, right? So just think about, you know, back in the steroid era, some of these guys would actually get injured more often or have some of these connective tissue injuries because they've increased strength so quickly and adaptations at the muscular level is connective tissue didn't have enough time to adapt, right? But the same thing, a guy that, that jumps eight miles per hour in a, in a uh, short time window, you know, that does scare me a little bit because the connective tissue needs time to adapt to that. So, um, you know, it's, I think the, the biggest thing is um, you just got to be able to look and dive deep and make sure that kind of these blanket suggestions, cookie cutter programs, are they actually particularly helpful for that individual and what they need and what they're trying to work on? Sure, sure. No, that's really, really good. Uh, before we really move on to some different other things, was there anything in either of those presentations that you know that we didn't cover that you wanted to? I've got some, I've got some more questions for you, but I just didn't want to. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we hit some of the big rocks, um, without having to get, we can, we can go back at the end too, crazy if detail. you think of anything, but no, I, th- I think we're good. Good to move on. Cool. So, uh, another thing that, that you hear a lot of, uh, people talking about, I, again, it's, it's we have our small bubbles that we're in uh, with, as far as personal conversations. And then you see on social media, there's just so many, there's things that trend, right? I mean, that's one of the things that makes Twitter uh, popular is because you can see trending topics. And one of those is decel training. And I, I think that mm-hmm. that's, or deceleration training. And that's something that has come up uh, a lot in, in maybe the last couple of years, maybe two, three years or so, maybe five. I, I don't, I don't necessarily know, but it, it seems to come up a lot 
And so can you kind of walk us through, walk our, us and our listeners through what deceleration training is and then, you know, how we can do a better job of training that and if we should or, or why it would be important? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, just to, to backtrack, uh, you know, one small step is the importance of deceleration is obviously it's going to influence our capability to accelerate. So kind of a famous Tom House quote is you know, your body's only capable of accelerating what's capable of decelerating, right? So simple analogy to use for driving in a car, we slam on our brakes, okay, very hard decel, what happens to our body? It projects and propels forward. That's why we wear a seatbelt, right? So I think most people understand the importance of it. Um, and I think we kind of see this dichotomy paradigm of, of thoughts as some people are D-cells, 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 some more on the Excel. Uh, and, and I think the pendulum's shifted a little bit because a lot of times our athletes are weaker in uh, deceleration because they haven't trained as much, particularly in, in weight room or other type settings. And then also the, the mechanical influence too. So things that are happening uh, further upstream are affecting the deceleration. So in terms of training, um, you know, say let's talk about hitting first. So let's do it. you have a lot of different options, and I may actually go back to some slides. Uh, you have a lot of different options for deceleration, right? So you have, you have guys that can um, – kickback or scissor, right? That's one way to decelerate. Uh, you have guys that can stride real close and pull their belt buckle around, right? So you're generally, and I'm not going to try to dive not down too deep of a strength coach rabbit hole here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no guarantees. Um, but so listeners, if you don't have access to video, right, Bryce Harper would be one, right? Strides very close. Then he uses his adductor and his glute med to pull that right hip around. He pulls that belt buckle all the way around. So I also have a picture of Seth Beer, one of our guys from a couple of years ago, did the same exact thing. But because of anatomy, only your left-handed hitters are generally going to be able to do this, right? So when we look at D-cells, we They're have – both righty-lefties, right? Yeah. Like throw yeah. righty, hit lefty, okay. Yeah. Um, particularly common in that, that uh, combination as well. Um, so when we look at D-cell, there's a lot of different ways to D-cell, right? So we have to be aware of that and what their anatomy and capabilities are because ultimately it affects uh, what, what we need to work on to improve what their D-cell strategy is. So um, for guys like this, they have to be really good at that pelvic rotation and we have to get that pelvis to internally rotate on that front hip and have strong adductors to work into that. Uh, Guys that are more uh, kickback, uh, scissor type, okay? These guys generally, they got to be really freaking strong on single leg, right? And be able to post up and create that stiffness and firmness. And then they also generally have to be very strong uh, fascially. So you think about how connective tissue runs from your, your hip to your opposite shoulder, right? So when these guys kick back, they're creating some length, to give them a chance to tension that fascial line. So um, I know I went on a tangent a little bit, but we also have to look at what is their D-cell pattern so we know how to improve it as well, right? So a kickback guy may have to work on certain things to improve the D-cell than a 
a close strider who's pulling the hip back. And then you have guys who are hybrids all in between these different areas. So um, general things, uh, you know, a lot of times different med ball patterns work well for this. We have a lot of hip shifting drills we do for guys that will stride closed and pull back. Um, but like these, these kickback guys, single leg strength is really, really important in looking at some of those things. Um, and then in pitching, oftentimes the it's not so much single leg strength. It's really how well do you time and work your pelvic rotation, right? And if you do that really well, oftentimes you put yourself in the position to where you're, you're optimizing your foot planet hooks at foot strike and you're able to get into that front hip and have a good blocking strategy. So um, it's not like a broken record, but everything does depend upon your anatomy strategy. Uh, and then also mechanics. So, you know, and we do things, I know Coach Lee uh, and them, they'll do things in the cages. Like we have a heavy bag, guys hitting heavy bags. So if they need more trunk D-cell work, it's also what D-cell do you need to work on? Is it more of a pelvic D-cell? Is it more of a trunk D-cell? Um, you know, we use RMT clubs in the weight room. So they're, um, uh, think of like a club. It's got a round handle or a round end with little pellets in it, which allow us to work eccentric con- uh to work rate of force eccentrically really quickly. So that works on a lot of trunk D cell and hip D cell stuff. So we'll do a lot of patterns with those. Uh, we're looking to get into aqua bags a little more. So there are some specific things definitely, but I think it's important that just like anything else, it's not just general drills, but you have to understand uh, what are their D cell strategies and what are the areas that they need to work on. That's like stop swings, other things like that, you know, our trunk D cells. So, once you know these things, I think you can narrow down what are D-cell things you need to work on. What is What uh, are some different important strategies for hitting deceleration? So you mentioned torso. Uh, for, again, this is something that, that's, that a lot of people are getting into but uh, may not understand the different segments of uh, deceleration. What are some different ones that involve hitting that people need to focus on? Steve, you mean in terms of the – this, I'm a little uh, confused. Yeah, here. with with the uh, with uh, body deceleration. So, like when when we're hit it or when we're throwing, it's obviously your mm-hmm. arm is going to be decelerating. So, yeah. Uh, as far as hitting specific deceleration goes, mm-hmm. what are what are the different areas that we should be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, first, obviously, uh, pelvis. Okay, so that's going to allow energy transfer uh, through the trunk, and then uh, usually. The pelvis in the trunk, if you have good pelvic D-cell patterns, then you're transferring energy to the trunk, and then trunk has good D-cell patterns, you're transferring energy to the arm and hand. So usually if those first two line up, uh, you know, things are going to fall into place for you. Um, so if you are you are fortunate enough to use a, a K-vest, you can actually look at that. Um, so you have all the graphs that climb up, but also you can look – uh, how they decel at the end, and also look. Some guys that decel really, really well will actually have a counter rotation of the hips, right? So if I'm a left-handed hitter and my hips are rotating around towards my right hip, is moving beyond contact. My decel is so strong that oftentimes I'll get this counter rotation back to the left, right? And actually, we'll see that most uh, predominantly and prominently in those left-handed hitters like Bryce Harper, Seth Beer, that pull the belt buckle around 
they've created all that elastic energy in the glute that causes that counter rotation. So that's one way you can assess to uh, efficiency of a, a pelvic D cell without having a K vest is those guys that guys who kick back oftentimes if it's really strong and they, they post and D cell well in that front leg, you'll see some of that hip counter rotation too. So that's another way to kind of look at it and evaluate it if you don't have access uh, to a K vest, but you know, you're looking at that, then you're looking at the trunk uh, rotation and guys who generally have good trunk rotation, you'll kind of see that, that kind of oval as they're, they're, uh, they're following through in terms of the front arm and the bottom arm and that spacing right there. Generally they'll have trunk D cells. So there's a lot of things you can look at from, from film without necessarily having to have access to, um, to a K vest or things of that nature. And the other day too, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. I'm a strength coach, right? But I just really like to study the movement because ultimately I'm trying to give the best information possible to our coaches and then they're determining the best movement strategy, right? Sure. No, absolutely. Thank you again for, for going uh, into that a little bit because I, I know that, again, it's a term that's thrown around a lot, but I don't know. I, don't, I haven't run into a ton of different resources or dove in deep, super, super deep about it uh, as far as, as, as that go. I mean, it's just as far as how you can integrate it in a weight room too. Uh, and we, and we can, you know, on field staff can sometimes see that in video or like you mentioned with K vest, uh, but being able to train things and be able to point things out are two different things, right? Being able to actually come up with a solution to the problem versus pointing out what the problem is are, are two different things, I think. And so again, thank you for, for going into that. Yeah. So another thing that, uh, that I think is really that you've hit on a lot, but I, I really want to reiterate, uh, the importance of it. And that's breathing. And so, and, and I really, you know, I, again, you've hit on it a lot, but I'd love to hear in just a short, uh, a short time span, why is it, why is it important? And then when you like to integrate that within uh, just your practice or within, but within the, the weight room. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Got to give credit to a lot of people on this as, as we work together on this a lot is, is obviously uh, Coach Lee, big proponent of this and, and guys in terms of their breathing strategy as it relates to to in-game and stuff in the box or stuff uh, on the mound. And then our sports psychologist, uh, Corey Schaefer, does a tremendous job working with our guys. So they're working on, on very uh, specific game-related stuff. Um, kind of my end will be – more posturally related. So when we're doing postural stuff in the weight room, like a maybe a hip lift, we're doing it with long exhales, right? So John, if you just sit there right now, take a long exhale through your mouth, take as long exhale as you possibly can. All the listeners can do it as well through the mouth as long as you can. And when you let all the air out with a long exhale, what do you feel at the very end? Empty, loose. Yeah, and you, you feel your abs turn on a little bit probably. Yeah, absolutely. Too. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of working that rib rotation and taking some of this tension out of your lats and your neck and, and affecting posture. Um, but really, really important for the guys. We're doing that in the weight room, warm-up setting. They're doing that throughout the day. And then kind of the cadence our guys work on is, has to do with something we've, we've worked on with, with Corey, our sports psychologist, too. So the guys are constantly working on this. So that's like, you know, the, the thought, take a deep breath. But how do you take a deep breath? right? If it's 
75% inhalation, that may actually be exciting you more, right? So you, you have to look at the ratio of your inhale to your exhale in terms of long exhales will make you more relaxed and also have some postural benefits too. And the other thing too is um, nasal breathing. So we get our guys when they're training and, you know, when they're doing things of low to moderately high intensities, breathing through their nose uh, allows them to stay more aerobic in what they're doing so they can last longer too. Really important for pitchers uh, is when our guys really bought into that over the last couple of years, we found their aerobic, aerobic efficiency improved. They were able to maintain velocity better, recover better, and those types of things. So um, it's so important and it's such, an, it's such low-hanging fruit. It's easy to work on, right? Uh, but I think why it's successful for us is we kind of have that, that uh, triangulation of myself, Coach Lee, and Corey, our sports psychologists, to where we're, the guys are hearing the importance of it in so many different realms, from posture to slowing the game down um, to all these different elements so the guys really understand the importance of it. No, that's really good. And again, it's the reason I bring it up is because I have, I've been reading a lot like this year, I've, I've decided to start to read a lot on one topic rather than reading so many different books from so many different topics. And so getting to my topic this year was the brain and it may last me 10 years, but uh, <laughs> they, they just talk about the research behind breathing in the brain. And that's, that's been hitting me a lot lately is because essentially the, the diaphragm, uh, it tells a lot about what your body is doing to the brain because the brain controls everything. It's your executive function. It, it like it, whenever we see, touch, feel, hear anything, it goes through our brain first and our brain interprets what uh, that feeling is. And so like just hearing the, the, about how important the diaphragm is and how that controls the regulation of so many different things in our body is like, man, I really, I, and, and you hit on some of those same things too. And I was like, I, I really have overlooked this now, just not even, even, you talked about the looseness and we didn't even get into the psychological benefits of it besides, you know, what I just mentioned, but there's so many, so many, so many different ways that that can improve. And even with short breathing and uh, it affects our brain as far as, as making it calm down or freak out, which I think you mentioned that as well, but it's just uh, being able to control your breath is everything. And I know I've heard Alan Jager talk about it a ton and I'm like, Oh yeah, just, you know, breathe. But that's the most simple version of, of really, once you dig into it, it's super, super important. And so that's really, really good. And, and I love he getting to hear you explain how important it is because again, we come from, from different ba backgrounds and you're in the weight room and I'm, you know, on the field. And, and so it, it's really, it's really neat to see the things that correlate between the two. But another, another thing that I really, we've talked about quite a bit and you've mentioned elastic stretch quite a bit. And, mm -hmm. and I, I really, again, I want to break, these things down uh, one for myself but also for listeners who you know you've heard of that term but they they're not exactly sure what that means and so can you talk us to can you take us through what elastic stretch is and then i think on the flip side of that can we sometimes and i think i've been guilty of this in the past can we get too much elastic stretch yeah definitely uh so really um this is actually a, a simple um analogy somebody gave me uh several years back oh, i love it was but uh so you can put your put your index finger on your on your chest right just your index finger doesn't matter which hand all right then lift that finger up snap it down as hard as you can in your chest okay now do the same thing 
Now pull with your opposite thumb, pull that finger back, and then snap it down, right? It's obviously a simple, simple uh, analogy, but it kind of shows you the purpose and intent behind elastic energy return, right? As we put, we put the muscle on stretch, uh, or not just the muscle, it could be an entire fascial line, uh, and stretch, and we get an elastic energy return. So probably the concept to understand uh, with this, and I believe I have a slide I can pull up too, um, is ultimately we're talking about muscle slack. So I think that's a, a term that's been thrown around in baseball a little bit more that people are understanding is this is just basically the concept that uh, when we're at rest, our muscles hang like slack rope, right? So generally speaking, if we're more mobile, we'll have more slack, right? If we're, stick, if we're stiffer, we'll have less slack. So for us to have this elastic energy return, we have to pull the slack out of the muscle, right? So really there's two different ways to do this. Number one, we can do it via a stretch, right? So if we're talking about hitting, it could be um, a coil uh, in the negative move, right? So in the hips and then also in the torso. Uh, but we can also create a stretch through our forward move and pelvic dissociation as well, right? So there's different ways that we can pull slack out of the system. So those would be via uh, stretching maneuvers. The other one would be through a co-contraction, right? So when we're stiffening or creating tension uh, from muscles, uh, without getting too scientific here, uh, on all sides and areas of our body, right? Uh, so, you know, if, I'm, if it's hitting and we're creating some, some torso stretch, uh, some X-factor stretch, so through my abdominals, through my back, a light bracing is something that I could co-contract to pull the slack out without maybe having to get to end range stretch. Uh, so I think that's the important concept is, and that's where you see the use, Jonathan, of some of these water bags and things of that nature. So some frame awesome. influence mm -hmm. in baseball. I know uh, Florida Baseball Ranch, they put out a lot of good stuff on that. Um, is... This is a way to create a co-contraction without necessarily having to get to that end range stretch. Because the, the, the potential negative effects of that are, one, if it's hitting, you have a time constraint, and it could lead to too much time impact, right, and affect your timing. And then also when you're working at these end ranges is sometimes you can put a lot of additional stretch on soft tissues, right? So obliques, uh, lower back type stuff, and hitting and pitching. Um, so this is where these, there's these different strategies to get this elastic energy return. But when, when we create this pre-stretch, uh, and this elastic energy return, uh, oftentimes our rate of force development is going to be a lot higher and our, our potential for force, um, output. So a lot of times with a, any decent athlete, if I do a vertical jump, say I jump 30 inches, right. And then I step on a uh, maybe a 12 inch box. And now I drop off and jump up a lot of times they'll jump higher because of some of that, uh, elastic energy return from that stretch reflex. Now, if I pull the box up too high, then we'll actually have a negative effect, but ultimately it's going to help how quickly we can produce force. And a lot of times, uh, more force production, but that's needed, uh, in baseball to really hitting because you have the time constraint. Sure. Sure. And that's what, you know, that's why I think uh, some interesting questions are, 
uh, what is enough and what is too much? Like can, can, because especially in hitting with it being such a reactive sport, sometimes too much, uh, give, makes you have too, too many, too much of a time variable to not be able to catch up to certain velocities. Uh, with pitching, it's a little bit different, but I think as far as, you know, we talked about hip and shoulder separation. Uh, I, I think trying to create that with more time instead of that being that elastic band analogy, like you mentioned, is just kind of a stretch and then hold and then, then go, which is not necessarily good too. So I think it's for me, especially because I, I really tried to dig into these and then I failed a lot, like trying, <laughs> trying different things and, uh, and realizing what, what didn't work. And I've got 10 years of failure uh, behind me and trying to continue to get better as far as that goes, but, but that's really an inter interesting topic. And I, and I did have tension and co-contraction uh, with that, which is a really interesting topic. But another venture that I'm, that I'm trying to get better at is working with players who are hypermobile uh, mm -hmm. and, and in other words, being really loose. And we can talk about just in general, or we can talk about just specific joints that are hypermobile or both. But they're hard to work with, especially with hitting. I'm sure pitching too, because we always were like, man, that 6'6 six, six guy, if he can ever figure out this or that, and they're just super loose. They, they, I don't know what it's like to be 6'6 six, six and tall and skinny uh, and, and, and uh, uncoordinated, uh, but I, I have no idea. And so I think that that's an interesting uh, discussion too. But, but just guys that are like that, especially when I have no, I have no knowledge or feeling of what that is like, uh, working with those guys is really, really tough because they have to create that stretch somewhere. And so what, what's your best advice on working with guys uh, who literally pass all of your mobility tests and probably do so uh, to an extent of where you're like, wow, I don't even know how you did that, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, great question. So generally on the pitching end, you're going to see my, more of the hypermobility um, to where you're you're maybe working on some strategies. Hitting, you'll see it from time to time. It tends to be more loose movers than hypermobile, right? Because generally the guy, catchers get tight because obviously the position they're in all day, infielders because they're bent sure. over. Yeah, that's a good point. Tight. Um, but you, you definitely do. You see them across the whole spectrum, right? So I think one thing you look at their age and their maturity is generally once they start strength training over a period of time is they'll shift along the spectrum some. Uh, so over time that that'll help them out. So a hyper mobile will usually become a loose, a loose may become kind of like a, a middle of the road and so forth. Another thing goes back to what we were talking about before is looking at passive and active ranges of motion, right? So one thing we'll do a lot, uh, you know, particularly for the shoulder and, and our throwers are a lot of positional isometrics. So, Say I'm looking at somebody's shoulder range of motion, right? I can land them on back of a table. I can lift their arm up and I can hold them at their elbow and then put pressure on the wrist and see what their passive external rotation uh, range of motion is, right? For a pitcher or, or for a uh, position player for that matter. Then I, I can also flip them over in their stomach. I can put their hand on the ground and then see how high they can lift up on their own to look at their active range of motion. So one way I can address the active range of motion is positional isometric. So this comes from uh, kind of the FRC, Functional Range Conditioning School, is I can put a, a, like a blue Airx pad or pad under their hand, have them tighten up their shoulder, and then just lift up off the pad. And we can do positional drills like that to increase their 
active range of motion and decrease some of that discrepancy. Um, so a lot of times that will help with some of the movements in terms of what their health risk is. Uh, but then we also talked about some of the co-contraction stuff. Some of the, uh, could be some eccentric stuff in the weight room, uh, which can, which can help them, uh, kind of mature and, and, and tighten to a certain degree. Um, but I think ultimately you, you just have to go back to those three questions I talked about. Does their hypermobility or looseness affect their output and productivity? Does it affect their efficiency or does it affect their health? And then based off which one of those, or maybe a combination, what is the appropriate strategy? So, um, you know, if it's an 18 year old, you're getting as a draft guy or us 18 year old freshmen, generally when they get doing, when they get into our program and, and higher volumes of lifting and things like that through natural maturation, they'll tighten up a little bit over time. And then some of these positional isometrics, co-contraction stuff, whether it be water bags, RMT clubs for us. Uh, also we do a lot of Try not to dive too deep down another rabbit hole, Jonathan. But uh, a lot of fascial training, so isometrics, connecting opposite hips and shoulders, and things of that nature will help also in some of your tensioning and co-contraction strategies, which help with loose movers. Um, so that's something we've started assessing a lot more recently too, is um, these fascial lines. So think about, think about a right-handed hitter. My acceleration fascial line is kind of tissue running from that right shoulder to left hip, mm -hmm. right? And then on the back side, the acceleration is the left shoulder to the right hip, right? Mm -hmm. Fascial breaks are running from that uh, left hip to the right shoulder. And then on the front side, the left shoulder to the right hip, right? So sure. doing... So it's almost like an X. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So you have an anterior oblique sling and a posterior on both sides, right? So testing those and also developing these fascial lines help a lot with some of these co-contractions and tensioning, particularly with loose movers, because you'll see a lot of times they'll have some imbalance in some of these fascial slings. Uh, so assessing and working on those are generally very helpful too. Oh, fantastic. With, you've, talk, you've mentioned fascia quite a bit, and I, I think that that uh one i think that that there it number one let's let's talk about you know what it is and and, and a very short simple term i just think it, it covers yeah. the whole body uh and it's it's kind of the the best analogy you talk about analogies the best one that i had heard was you know whenever you cut your steak and it's got that white stuff on it that's fascia <laughs> yeah like, oh, okay but another question that i had with that was uh, especially lately i i've heard a lot of of back uh, of backtracking on foam rolling. Now, mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if that's relevant or if that's just, you know, once you have a trend, then someone tries to buck the trend with the opposite of what the trend is and <laughs> you try and find something out in between. But I really like foam rolling. It relaxes, but mm -hmm. a lot of people have, have come out and said that over the long term, it, it, it improves short term, you know, mobility and relaxation, but over the long term, it doesn't necessarily make uh, many changes. Would you say that that is true? And then uh, we can go more into fascia if you'd like. I mean, I, I, I could sit here all day and talk about any of this <laughs> stuff, but I, I want to make sure that, that you're, you, you've got the time and that you're. Oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh, I love talking about this. something I've, I've uh, dove into a lot the last couple of years. And by no means an expert, but just continue to learn more and more about these ideas. Is um, So one with the fascia, 
and there's very different types there's different layers um it's basically your connective tissue so it helps support uh your organs and helps connect uh muscles and chains so it's almost like a a snot like uh texture um that that's kind of helps provide a net to help tension uh, muscle, muscles across chains and support organs and those types of things. So two things I'll hit on, Jonathan. One, it's important because uh, it's trained through elastic movements and through these, these whole body uh, type movements and patterns across multiple planes. Is oftentimes in weight room environments is development of this fascia and extracellular matrix uh, oftentimes is – uh, deprioritized and then we focus on the big lifts and these types of things so guys often lose some of these the uh, the strength and tensile uh, properties of fascia because it's responsible for probably 30 to 40 percent of force production so this can lead to injuries this can lead to uh, less fluid movement um, and other pathologies and injuries of tissues the, the second bit, uh, which you talked about with foam rolling, is really has two purposes. And one, it doesn't get rid of adhesions. Adhesions are way too deep for foam rolling to actually provide enough compression. Uh, so that's a fallacy there. But the compression itself will help elicit uh, hyaluronic acid. So that's a fluid which helps your tissues glide, right? So that compression helps the release of this. So your superficial or your top layer of fascia glides more smoothly, more smoothly, right? So it helps in that regard. And then also uh, inhibition too. It'll help inhibit or turn off muscles uh, to a certain degree. So if you do have something that's overactive and hypertonic, can help in that regard. Uh, and then also we talked about the release of the fluid that helps with the tissue sliding, which can also help in... Um, in force production because uh, there is so much water in in fascia and by doing this compression you help new water get kind of pulled into these fascial structures so foam rolling does help can help uh, you have to be careful if so say we go back to those extended postures again right so those guys have a hard time turning on their hamstrings right uh, because of the posture that they're in so these guys I don't want them foam rolling their hamstrings, right? They don't need to turn those off anymore, right? So somebody like that, it's we're, let's focus on the quads a little bit, the hip flexors, things like that. So just like anything else, you have to make it contextual and understand why exactly is that person foam rolling, right? Uh, so once we understand that, we can adopt a better strategy for how we're going to go about doing it. That's really, really interesting. And again, it's, it's, you have trends that, and fascia is one of them. And we talked about D cell too, which is, which is a, another interesting venture and, and we could do an entire show over those, but I, I think you've done an awesome job of explaining these, these terms and these trends in a way that even people in the strength and conditioning world would understand. I know that, that I am, I'm, I'm, I'm getting what you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping in what you're, what you're putting out. And so, uh, one more topic that, that I thought that, that you would want to hit on and that you sent over that you thought that would be really interesting. And I know that I'm super interested in hearing about it and that's uh, neural priming, uh, and game day neural priming in specific. Yeah. 
So can you hit on that for us a little bit before uh, we get into, you know, contact, uh, contact info and, and resources and then before we let you go? Because I think that that's a super interesting topic and one that, that honestly I haven't had anyone on the show talk about, but I think that, that it could be extremely beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so honestly, this was something that was brought to my attention about I think three or four years ago, one of my assistants at the time, uh, Jessica Prensley, she works with our women's soccer team. She, uh, she did a research on it and presented it to staff. Um, so the concept behind it is we have a general ebb and flow of our hormones and endocrine system throughout the course of the day, right? So testosterone, cortisol tend to be highest in the morning, and then they slowly decay throughout the day. Well, if we look at a lot of our sporting events, what time do they take place? In the evening, right? Evening or late afternoon. So we know testosterone is correlated with uh, improved results in explosive type sporting movements uh, and resistance training and sprinting. So ultimately, that's something we probably want to optimize when we're competing in the afternoon or evening. So it's something I actually started with the soccer program at Clemson um, a couple years ago. So we usually play at 6 p.m. So at 11 or 12, we'll have the team come to the weight room to we'll do a two or three minute warm up. Then we'll actually do some really heavy bench pressing with those guys. Uh, so that's our heaviest upper body, and it's, it's low volume. It doesn't take very long. We'll do a couple bike sprints, and we'll do some chin-ups or chin-up pull-downs. So all together, between a warm-up and that work, takes 15 minutes. Then at the end, we'll do a little bit of headspace. But the purpose is, with that intervention in the middle of the day, we are preventing and mitigating the decay of testosterone throughout the course of the day. So ultimately, we're not going to create this massive spike but there'll be much less decay going into that evening match. And when we started doing that, we were hit or, we were really good program, uh, elite program. We were hit and miss in how we started matches. Uh, so when we really started implementing that, we were like, wow, this has made a tremendous impact in how we, how we started matches. We were very consistent and always started very well. So this past year is when I started implementing it with baseball, mainly with our starting pitchers, uh, is we would do it, same thing, late morning, midday, warm up we would do trap bar jumps so obviously we're not going to bench press those guys before they pitch um we don't bench press pitchers at all but so trap bar jumps we'll do some short sprints we'll do some uh some one of our guys real elastic he does hurdle hops into a sprint some combination stuff but short sessions we finish with headspace to kind of get them back in that uh parasympathetic mode uh but it was enough just to spike them uh and create that endocrine response where the guys <laughs> they were money their money going into the evening felt really good. Now, if we had an earlier game, we would do it the day before, and you can still have some residual effects from that. Um, so it's an endocrine response and also neural too. So guys who tend to be real explosive, um, they tend to be very – a little bit of a rabbit hole, Jonathan, bear with me. They tend to be very dopamine sensitive. I love the rabbit holes. <laughs> you think about any of your elite explosive athletes, if you – if they just sit on their butts for two days, they're flat as hell, right? They have to do something almost every day, right? So these guys, if, if starting pitcher, they're going to pitch at 6 p.m. Usually they need some type of neural uh, excitation to get them going. So we found it to be really helpful. We'll do it uh, with, pitch, with uh, position guys on the road late morning. We'll go in the cages, and I'll do a warm-up with some plyo push-ups, some tuck jumps and things like that. But we found it – very successful. Our guys have really bought into it. Um, you know, it's tougher with position players because 
want just their volume day in and day out. You don't want to just be giving them extra crap to do. Uh, we found it very good with our starting pitchers and then small doses with guys that I think uh, like it. Uh, good potential with the position players as well. That's really cool. And uh, I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you to uh, to get some ideas on that because I, I think most of our listeners play at night. And so that's something that even if we get that little bit of an advantage uh, to start faster, to start better, to maintain longer, and to get that testosterone level up, I think that can only uh, only be benef- beneficial for us. The other cool thing, Jonathan, you don't mind me. Uh, sure. No, absolutely. We do some testing with it too. So we would uh, – on our uh, our force plate, we get some jump, jump- – we also did a jump mat with the trap bar jump. So I wouldn't mm-hmm. tell them what their scores were because self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't want to say, oh, hey, you're down today. You're going to be down about three miles an hour. But I would know I could track it longitudinally and also give this information to our pitching coach. So it was good for my long term. It was another opportunity for me to see how well we trained them throughout the week to see where they were on the day start. So great, great feedback loop in that sense, too. Fantastic. Well, I know that there will be some listeners who maybe want to reach out to you. And uh, besides your Twitter account, which I will link below, what's the best way to get in touch with you, if you don't mind? Yeah, Twitter's good. Um, email. Uh, my, either I can send it to you or, or uh, to put it in the notes. And then also, I don't really do Instagram, but our, our staff department, we have Clemson Ollie Strength reaching out to us through there. I'm, okay. I'm kind of working my way on that a lot. Those those are usually the best ones to reach out. Okay. And then uh, before you go, if you could, uh, and uh, this is kind of a tough question because most of the, our listeners are, are on-field coaches, but if you could gift each of our listeners one, and I'll, I'll give you some leeway with maybe two, but one <laughs> to two books uh, that would help uh, them in their pursuit of mastery and just on-field performance with a strength and conditioning uh, w- you know, with the help of strength and conditioning, what would those books be? Whew, good question. Um, oh, let's see here. Um, hmm. I, I don't know if it'd be a book. Um, and it would be a challenging little bit of a deep rabbit hole. Okay, sure. I think in baseball, being able to understand some of the con just the basic concepts of the Postural Restoration Institute. Uh, because for rotational sports, that triplanar function of the body is so, so important. And with these extended postures that we see, um, understanding some of those basic concepts would be tremendously helpful. Um, and and some that. basic anatomy uh, underlying. So like anatomy trains, Thomas Myers talks about fascial lines. Uh, that may be a good helpful read too, as you start to, as fascia becomes, the concept becomes more uh, popular in, in baseball. Mm-hmm. Talk. I love it. Well, Rick, I, I appreciate your time. And I know that, man, I, my head is spinning from all the information that you gave us today. And I'm going to have to continue to dig in uh, even deeper uh, to this conversation and to some of the resources that you've mentioned, but I'm going to open up the mic for you and just give you uh, just some time to talk to our listeners. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell them before you go? Um, you know, I guess the only thing would be to to continue to challenge yourself in terms of why you do everything and to be able to rationalize and, and be open-minded and, and really study 
the other ends that you don't know as well. For, so for me, it was, you know, ultimately I found, you know, going back two, three years ago, I couldn't provide and communicate this information to the coaches well enough. So I had to do a deep dive into baseball and movement and mechanics and those types of things. So I encourage, if you're a strength coach, spend as much time on the other side of the fence. If you're an on-field coach, spend as much time on the other side of the fence getting to learn the body. Because at the end of the day, the way this is going is uh, these lines are just getting blurred more and more, and we have to really understand and see the whole picture. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.